life of fulfillment starts with understanding your values. And when you know what truly motivates you, you can accomplish extraordinary things. Welcome to the Discover Your Values podcast, where each week we hear unique perspectives on human values with leaders who inspire us to explore the depth of our potential. Now, here's your host, Jacob J. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to another episode. Today, we have with us Pete Freeman. Pete is a nonprofit leader with 10 years directing and evaluating domestic and global health and wellness initiatives, co-awarded the Nobel Prize for Public Service, the Jefferson Award, for a nonprofit he co-founded at age 14. Pete has gone on to found and direct psychosocial music therapy courses across Indiana, adolescent sexual health initiatives in Ghana, and co-led the design and construction of six Ghanaian primary schools and a first-of-its-kind adolescent health and wellness corner in Ghana. Pete currently serves as president of Youth Health Ghana and vice president of Fueled for School, a nonprofit that sustainably reduces food insecurity throughout central Indiana. Pete, welcome to the show. Hey, Jacob. Thanks for having me. The pleasure is mine. Absolutely. So, Pete, you are familiar with the very first person that we interviewed on this show, Matthew Biggin. So how do you know Matthew? So I met Matthew at this point probably four or five years ago. Matthew and I both went to the same university, University of Notre Dame, and he was a junior when I was a first-year student here. And Matthew and I got on, well, really early. And then right before he graduated, he shared a special story with me an experience that he had had in the same dorm, the same dormitory that he and I both lived in for part of our experience at Notre Dame. And it was through that experience and through that sharing of the story that we grew even closer. And of course, some of your listeners who heard the podcast with Matthew already know he's traveling the world. He's quit his job and has gone on, I think, an 11-month, maybe more, adventure. And so he has been a great source of insight for me Hopefully, I've been able to offer him. That's how we met. So, tell us a little bit more about you and your background. Sure. I should say first, we were talking about this a little bit before recording. I, at this point, have recorded somewhere between 100 and 200 podcasts. And I believe this is the first time that I am on the other side of the table. So, this is a real, <laughs> a real privilege and should be a great conversation. And I should. Secondly, say, just yesterday, I was driving from the very southern rim of Indiana all the way up to the northern tip with 12 cents in my bank account, 12 cents on my name to go see the person I love. And so today, we're getting started with this podcast, and so I have no idea what's in store. So no pressure, of course, (laughs) but I'm eager to uh, continue this journey with with an incredible conversation. So a a little bit about... My background, I was born and raised in what was originally a refurbished chicken coop built by a Titanic survivor. It's kind of a fun house to be born and raised into. Of course, later it was added on and made to resemble what most people might refer to as, as a house. That was in northern Indiana and then moved all around Indiana, north, south, central Indiana before then in ninth grade, as you mentioned, it's a hot August day, 
walking with three of my closest friends on the sidewalk outside of our high school. And one of my best friends at the time turns to me and says, hey, I have this Eagle Scout project, but I'm not sure it's going to work. I fall through the cracks, but I think I'm going to do it anyway. Would you want to pursue it? I said, well, what's the project? And he said, well, I'm thinking about mentoring elementary school students. So far, I only have maybe two or three who are interested, but I think if we can make this really special and really make a difference in a few lives. This could be really promising and exciting. And I said, oh, sure, why not? So after about a year of that, we ended up mentoring four students. And then after two years, three years, we've grown to about 100 students. And at the end of the four-year journey with what we called Sparrow Program, we had mentored and involved mentees totaling probably over 500 high school and elementary school students. And that was my introduction to evidence-based interventions, which <laughs> as, a, as a numbers and evidence nerd, I was fascinated by. And also had many critiques for it. So then left Sparrow and didn't think I was going to college. I thought I was going to stay locally in Central Indiana, maybe start a business, just because the money wasn't there. Maybe work, save up, and, and go as soon as I could. At the last minute, I was, I was given this incredible gift, this quarter million dollar scholarship that, in the fullest sense of the phrase, changed my life. And that was in March, March of my senior year. So I thought, ah, and I'm going to university. After all, and so went to the University of Notre Dame and had one life-changing experience after another, was able to travel to several places in Europe, to East and West Africa, and continued during those four years implementing evidence-based interventions. So locally in South Bend, which is the city near Notre Dame, psychosocial music therapy course, which was really less therapy and really more exploring storytelling for personal healing. And then in West Africa, went on to work in the area of adolescent sexual health. And in some sense, that's, that's what I'm still up to. You must have been really, really overwhelmed with the notification of like a quarter million dollar scholarship that you had. Because I, I, when I heard that, it, it reminded me somewhat of my own personal story with going to college where... I didn't, didn't get a scholarship. I ended up having to pay for it. But I appreciate where kids are coming from that have to explore other alternatives. And then, you know, if something happens and you get awarded this amazing scholarship, like what was that like for you? Like the first day you got that letter? Well, you have to understand. So my, my dad, who went to college, starting at a young age, so maybe four in Alexandria, Indiana. So Indiana is probably going to come up a lot podcast for so <laughs> many, really all of my family's from. He would collect pop tabs, go out early mornings. We're talking age four, five, six, seven, the pop tabs off of soda cans. And he would collect these from all over town, dumpsters and wherever he could find them. And then turn them back into the local municipality or the government or wherever he would be refunded. And that is how he would save up for college. And so wow. growing up, there was this story that I lived inside of dad lived inside of, which is the story I just shared. And, and the moral that my dad chose to extract was, Pete, you are going to pay for college. <laughs> and what do you say is, you know, as somebody growing up, when your dad says, you know, I saved you know, from the, the pop taps off the soda cans for whatever, 15 years, you know, if I could do it, you could do it. 
wow, gosh, dad, that's <laughs> college is quite a bit more expensive than it was <laughs> yes. 30, 40 years ago. And so to answer your question in the moment, I, I was completely overwhelmed with gratitude. I, I was so grateful and I, I can't fully express how much that moment meant. I had interviewed and again, it was March and I'm in my AP calculus class and somebody comes in and his name's Dan and I think, oh, he's here to promote engineering internships. Right? The last thing is someone who was in AP calculus, but very much probably toward the end of the pack in that class and goes up to the front of the class starts talking and I've tuned him out, working on the study guide, right? Exams are around the corner. I don't have time to listen to Dan. And all of a sudden I do have time to listen to Dan because he's saying my name and <laughs> he's saying the Eli Lilly Community Scholarship. Now I'm very much listening to Dan and then my family comes in and the, and the principal of the high school comes in. Wow. Pictures are being taken and I'm covering my face because I'm turning beet red. Wow. It was, it was an incredible, I bet. just an incredible day that I'll always be. How did you come to know that a, a life of service would be your calling? You know, I'm not sure that I know that now. I, from a young age, some of my earliest memories are of looking up at the stars. My first word was moon. My, my mom would hold me and we'd look out the window and she would say moon and then I'd say moon and that became my first word. And, and the reason I share this is because I was always so filled with awe at the world. And so if my life is oriented towards service now, what that orientation is grounded in, deep curiosity, a deep, without sounding cheesy, just a deep fascination with anything and everything. I can count on one hand the number of times that I recall being bored in my life because anything from dusty old 60-year-old manual on cars to you know a stimulating conversation about ancient philosophy to you know a geopolitical analysis of conflict in the Middle East. I mean these are all conversations that by no means I'm an expert in, but I can't help but being deeply interested. And so service has been born out of that of that curiosity. So questions like, well what is a good life? And well what does it mean to just do good? instead of simply feeling good about some of the work you're doing. And that's, of course, where evidence-based interventions might come into play. Questions like, well, happiness sounds great, but maybe it's a little cheap. What about joy? What about deep, meaningful peace? And then how does that personal joy and peace relate to a kind of societal embrace of justice? And these are the questions that I'm still exploring and have spent the last few years diving. You mentioned curiosity and it's a, a wonderful value. It's something, it's one where we share that. And I'm curious, what are you, what are you curious about in your life right now? That's, that's a great question. I'm curious what you're curious about. I'm going to have to steal that. Right now, I'm curious about, I'm curious about still personal peace. So what does that mean to be at peace with yourself, with the world, with your work? When I was 12 years old, I'll never forget, it was, a, it was a Sunday morning, and my dad came back from southern Indiana, and he shared with us that he had been to a Buddhist temple. And I don't remember what my family's reaction was, but my reaction was surprise. <laughs> my dad had been raised fairly strict Christian, Protestant upbringing, and he invited us all to sit down on cushions, and he played a recording of Ping the Frog, which was 
sort of Dharma story about a frog who chose to leave his surroundings in search of deeper meaning or more fulfillment. And it was not long after that that I began to practice meditation, never seriously for many years, but just dabbling, trying to get my foot in the door, so to speak, of meditation. And then maybe four years ago, maybe a little more than four years ago, I began to take meditation a little more seriously. And so today, meditation has been a great tool for diving into not just personal peace, but really tuning into you know, what matters, what's in the here and now, how to be a little bit more present to the people you're with, the projects you're working on, and really to yourself. And I found that when I embrace that, a lot of the rest of life sort of takes, takes care of itself. I'm curious about with the level of service that you've done, because you've done quite a bit in your lifetime already. And I know a lot of professionals out there now that are working kind of corporate jobs and they are wanting to make the transition to a life of service and they don't know how to make that transition to promote and support other social causes. And when I look through, you know, your background, it seems that that's been kind of your starting point. That's, that's been the world that you've lived in. Do you ever, so you're kind of on the opposite side, I think of where a lot of other maybe corporate professionals are in some cases that want to, you know, go do something different and who may not find. and, And the biggest thing I hear sometimes is that, Sometimes people in corporate jobs want to find more meaning, you know, in their life and they feel like a life of service would be, would help that. And do you ever feel pressure to do something else? Because you're on the other side of it. And I think a lot of people might look to you and say, Pete's doing what I want to do. And I'm curious what you, what you kind of go through in your mind. And I'm glad you touched on meditation because it sounds like that probably has brought you a lot of peace in this process too. Full disclosure. I know almost nothing about corporate jobs, corporate life, that rhythm, and the momentum that comes along with that. So everything I'm about to say is from the perspective of what I've heard from friends, folks that I've spoken with. One thing that I've heard from folks who are looking to transition out of corporate lifestyles, say something like, well, I've spent all this time built all these skills and I have all this momentum and I've learned so many nuances uh, about a particular company or you know, the sector I'm in or this, this line of work. I feel like, you know, maybe if they don't say expert, I feel like I'm advancing toward expertise in this way. And maybe then they talk about service as something like, ah, I just, I want to get away from a new service as, as if service is not nuanced. And as a service is this sort of thing that you do and it is done, right? There's Maybe there is a journey, but service is much more about giving, and that's the destination, and then the end. And the first thing I'd share as I hear this, I always think, well, well, to me, in my journey, service and working with others toward whatever it is, liberation agenda, toward psychosocial peace, toward lower rates of some sort of public health phenomenon is incredibly nuanced. I mean, you, you can spend, most folks can spend their whole lives not even becoming experts, but working toward expertise in a particular area, social work, or solving food-related issues, or economic issues. And so the first thing I say is, 
understand that this will also be a journey and that you're maybe almost perfectly positioned as someone who embraces nuance, embraces difficult problems to solve. But know that this isn't a sort of easier alternative. Maybe it would be in some circumstances, but in my experience, most times it's not. The second thing I would offer is a sort of elicitive approach to service, to use that word service. And what I mean by elicitive would be understand that you can tell yourself a story. And in that story, you are the one solving a problem or even helping solve a problem. But the reality is actually much more complex. What's happening is you are showing up. Oftentimes, you might show up in the lives of other people. And it's your presence, it's how you're showing up that elicits or slowly draws out or warmly invites the tools, the resources that are needed for this problem not to be solved. We don't really want to talk about solving problems, and we can get maybe more into that in a minute, but transforming the problem, right? So that you have the memory of what you're using the language of problem to identify, right? It's not like it never existed. It's important that it did exist, (laughs) but that you can trace that memory then to a present moment where it's either transformed or being transformed into a new story, a new narrative, a new system, structure, resource, relationship, whatever that is to live into. And that might sound lofty, that might sound complex, but the boiled down point that I'm making is it's important to listen, to understand that the solutions, so to speak, they already exist. They're already present, right? You don't need to create them. You need to listen to allow them to rise to the surface. And of course, being creative, being innovative is certainly a part. And then your role is simply to show up to your fullest extent, being present, embracing your capacities, your capabilities to help sort of birth this, again, solution or transformation in community with other folks. And doing that slowly and doing that in relationship is really important if you want some kind of sustainable, meaningful, deeply rooted, impactful, whatever language you want to use, outcome. And then the third and and final thing that I would offer is get ready to have a tremendous amount of both fun, but also time to really dig into complicated issues, right? So I've, I've never worked again in a corporate environment from what I understand, what I understand they're fantastically complex problems and issues and negotiations and mergers. And in the world of service, this is also the case. They just show up differently. And so if you enjoy that, then again, you are maybe perfectly positioned to begin to say, you know what, I can use some of the skills, the toolkits, the resources, relationships from my corporate life in this new life of service. Let me get started. I find right now happening, especially among emerging leaders, the youth, there's this kind of budding social consciousness that has developed in a way that, you know, perhaps was not there during the industrial revolution or you know early america where people are just trying to survive and you know put food on the table and now that you know so many people are working and they have good jobs and are doing pretty well at least in 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 some places in the world and certainly in in the US i think to some extent and i'm finding there's a lot of this desire to want to do good in everyday things and i'm seeing values-based decision-making in so many different domains of life that perhaps, you know, 
20, 30 years ago were not a thing. I mean, values are showing up in values-based healthcare. I've seen values-based investing. We're seeing values in food and eating sustainable food. And, and so there's a consciousness to so many different, or a consciousness that's being brought to so many different domains of life right now. And I think that does drive to some extent this desire to want to be involved in some way. And I'm curious from your perspective, because you have such a wonderful background, what's your take on this with kind of this, you know, emerging leaders, the younger generation today being more engaged in this way? Well, it's hard, right? It's, it's tremendously hard. To your point, 50, 60, 100 years ago, a meaningful life probably looked a lot different than what many folks in the United States and in the global Northwest might conceive of life today. The story might have gone, go to school, get a job in a large corporation, work your way up, become the CEO, retire, and that was a meaningful life. And then maybe the story sort of evolved to say, well, maybe go to school, maybe go to college, graduate and do something service-oriented, right? Serve. And that's, that's a meaningful life. But I think any more in the circles that I run in, at least, a meaningful life can be, you must do something incredibly unique, something that very few if, if, or nobody has ever done before. And sort of striving is in there. You must strive to do it. And uh, service would be great. But you must, in some sense, change the world, which is hard. Right? That's a huge ask. On the point of values, then, one of my favorite relationships that, that I made over the course of my undergraduate career was with a professor named Dr. David Anderson Hooker. And among many other things that he shared with me, he says, you know, Pete, oftentimes people really don't hire for your skills. They might say we're looking for these skills, but really folks hire for who you are, for how you show up, right? For what your energy is, Right, what you represent, or maybe more importantly, what possibility you embrace. And it seems like it would be much more difficult <laughs> to know how you show up, to show up intentionally, if you don't know your values, right? And so I know a lot of folks in their 20s, 30s, even 40s, and of course outside that age range are focusing on what job, what job will will I be able to get with my skills, right? What's the perfect job? And more and more, I think, well, it's important to think about jobs, but it's also important to think about your why, as Simon Sinek would say. You know, what, why do you want to do the type of job that you want to do? What's your story? And embedded in that story, inevitably, are values, right? And so it might be a, an important exercise to sit down and say, okay, today I'm going to put off the the, the mental conversation about, the mental chatter about the perfect job or the perfect jobs. And instead think, well, why do I care? Like, what is it about me that leads me toward this particular job? And a story should emerge. And then I'd be eager to hear your perspective on this next step. But I imagine that in that story, you could probably go value mining and just slowly say, okay, I'm going to treat myself like a third party, a sort of short fiction novel. And if I'm reading this character, right, in my high school language arts class, for instance, <laughs> or reading it as a sort of lover of good fiction, 
what values does this character embody? And then after that, it's like, oh, well, here's what I stand for. And maybe oftentimes, you don't even realize that that's what you stood for all along. And I think that you hit on something really important there, you know, for so many people and certainly in the work that, you know, we do with our organization is to help people go mining because I think that some people have a sense of, you know, what their motivations are. They often don't have a way to express them or haven't thought about how to express them and really kind of keep those things top of mind so that they can make better decisions about their life or at least put their motivations in alignment with their actions, which I think is really key. And then some people really haven't done any values work at all. Like they, sometimes I find that some people get so hooked into a system, you know, of work and they know what some of the successes that they've had, they know what some of their pains have been. And through those moments, we actually do get some evidence of, of some of, of your values. But, but most people have not had the opportunity to sit down and, and to your point, and I love what you wrote. That's a wonderful exercise. I'm, I might have to talk to you about stealing that around just this, how do you create a character for yourself? And what would the narrative of, of that be? And, and I, I think that's a wonderful way to, to look at it. But having people look at themselves in that way could be a, a really powerful, powerful thing to do. But the hardest step, I think, with any personal development, really of any kind, is taking the time to do it. You know, because life gets in the way, everybody's really busy. I love it when you talked about meditation earlier, because I also do meditation as well. And, and I love it and has made my life better for it. And yet, it's amazing how something so simple is so effective. But, you know, unless you're willing to put in the time to do something, it is hard to get change out of our lives unless we're willing to create moments of self-awareness, go meditate, find out what makes us tick. And, and often that's the hardest part for a lot of people is, is finding that moment to take time for yourself. And it's really self-care, I think, at the end of the day. A lot of it is self-care. Like, what is it that I need to do to take care of my life? And am I willing to go do it? And I was telling somebody today, a lot of folks want change in their lives. And sometimes the question I'll ask is, well, how far are you willing to go to get what you want? And often I find a lot of people are, are not willing to go very far. They're too ingrained in their, their current systems or their routines. And so getting them to break out of that cycle can be a very difficult thing. And you know, part of what we do with coaching work too is we, we meet people where they are. So it isn't, you know, there's no pressure to it either. People should feel comfortable to do what they feel comfortable doing in the moment that they're at in their, in their lives. But it is something that comes up quite a bit is to do what you want to do in the next level of your life is going to take a little bit of work for there to be change. So I was, I think, 22 or 23 at the time, maybe a little bit before that, right? So I've been meditating and nearing the end of my undergraduate experience. And I have this sort of realization that I am a perfectionist. And <laughs> looking back, it's like, oh, well, duh. But, you know, you, I sort of didn't want to admit that to myself. And for a couple of weeks, this bothered me, right? Because I thought, well, I don't want to be a perfectionist, right? And then I thought, well, perfectionism is helpful to some extent. It also hinders in others. 
I sought out this professor I mentioned earlier, Dr. Hooker, and we sat down, we had a conversation, and one of the great things that he helped me realize, and this leads into another exercise that might be helpful for listeners, I, I offer it only if it's helpful, it's been helpful for me, is to think about your experience of maybe not initiating a certain practice or ritual or something that you want changing in your life. Don't attribute that roadblock to you. So the example would be, Pete, it's not that you are a perfectionist because you aren't and nobody is. It's more the case that perfectionism is this third party entity, this separate thing. You can even give it a name, not perfectionism. Maybe call it, you know, perfect pat. I don't know. That shows up in your life. And when it shows up in your life, you have this habit of sort of giving into it, right? Imagine sort of perfect pat coming to your door and knocking. You recognize the knock and you think, oh, pat's here. And you're in this habit pattern of letting pat in. And then the next thing you know, you let pat are sitting on the couch and, and pat is lording this, this imperative over you saying, you must do this perfect. You know, you, there will be no other option for you if you don't accomplish this certain thing in this way. And before you know it, you're, you're stuck in this habit. And you thought, well, why did I let that in? <laughs> and, so, and that's easier said than done. But that leads to the exercise, which is recognizing, in my case, perfectionism as this third party and saying, okay, well, if perfectionism is its own separate thing, right, let's, we could even call it its own person. What could I do? What could I say to it? How could I behave that would, would scramble its, its pattern? Or in other words, what could I say that would confuse Pat? And so if I'm trying to get back in the habit of going to the gym, well, I can tell you exactly what Pat would say. Perfect Pat would sit on the couch and would say, Pete, you must go to the gym and you must do five sets or 12 sets and however many reps and you have to do them at this weight. You must drink this amount of water and make sure you get your protein shake in before. And if you're using supplements, here's how you're going to time the supplements. And make sure you get at least nine hours of sleep the night before and after to maximize the gains. No, that's what Pat would say. What would confuse Pat is instead of doing all that, just going out for a run. And while I'm a big fan, I mentioned earlier, of evidence-based initiatives, evidence-based interventions, maybe that first couple times, don't measure it. Don't have a sense of how many miles you're running, how fast you're running. It's okay. Just act immediately. Get some momentum, like we mentioned earlier. And all of a sudden, Pat is knocking on the door confused. It's like, well, this isn't what I told you. You know, perfectionism has no way to account for just go and do something, right? Because all of a sudden, you're just doing something. You're getting momentum instead of allowing Pat, this third party or perfectionism, to lord this, this request over you. And I get that that may sound easier said than done, but in my life, I've been slowly surprised at the change that can happen when you treat, whether it's perfectionism, whether it's anxiety, whether it's depression, whether it's doubt, fear, any of these things, instead of saying, I'm fearful or I am anxious, say, well, I'm not anxious. Anxious Annie is just showing up in the corner of my room right now. And yeah, it's, I feel anxious Annie, just like I feel perfect Pat, but what could I do to confuse Annie, right? If I went on a run to confuse Pat, what can I do to, to confuse Annie and then get that momentum? And then that can lead you slowly toward whatever practice. That's great advice. Pete, what is next for you? What are you most excited about right now? Oh, I'm always excited about life. <laughs> I've just I've been tremendously lucky to be just an, an adventure of a life. and. 
full of, of downs and ups. So next, I'm excited to, I've got this incredible job in the state of Indiana where I can do contract work and travel all around the state, meeting interesting people, working with them to learn about and improve their parenting, ultimately work toward increasing parenting time with parent and child, and maybe ultimately reunifying parent and child and doing it in a way that honors, like you were mentioning earlier, where the parents act, where the children or the child is at, in a way that's systematic, slow, sustainable, where we're not just saying, okay, the end goal is to reunify parent and child. How do we get there as soon as possible and then move on to the next one? No, 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 no. The purpose is to, again, be transformational. We're not solving problems. If we were solving problems, we would sit down in our biweekly team meetings and say, okay, how can we reunite these people? Oh, that easy? Let's go out. No, the purpose is to transform these habits of parenting. And to go back to what I was just talking about, it's the problem rarely, or maybe never, is bad parents. The problem is bad parenting. And if people aren't the problem and problems are the problem, well, all of a sudden, the human being that gets thrown this label of, you're an awful parent, is, well, it's not on them, right? Now, that's not to excuse the work that they're going to need to engage in to transform their relationship with the parenting, right? Again, this third-party entity. but. It is to say, this can be done. And you don't have to feel shame or guilt. You're welcome to. Anybody is welcome to. But know that this is separate. And know that this is going to be work that we engage in slowly, relationally, to make sure that the parenting changes. And so I'm excited about, about that work. I'm also excited about the work we're doing in Ghana. We're a little over halfway toward constructing a first-of-its-kind adolescent health clinic in rural Benyazi, Ghana. This is a yeah, it's a little, at this point, it's a little bit over a $20,000 project. The local chief and queen mother of Benyazi Ghana gave us a, a two and a half, very generously, two and a half acres of land. And when I say us, the NGO that co-direct with my partner is called Adolescent Sexual Health Initiative, or ASHI, which you mentioned, and the generous introduction you gave me earlier. All of the folks I work with in ASHI are, are Ghanaian. I'm the only white boy or or Westerner, uh, or non-Ghanaian, really involved. And that's been an incredible learning experience, figuring out how do we make this sustainable? How do we make this, how are we being elicited in this process? Ultimately, how are we making sure that this clinic meets the needs that are present? I mean, it's, it's not about what I want to do. It's not about, again, it's not about solving the problem of there is no clinic. It's about transforming the current circumstance of, wow, there are dramatically high rates of teen pregnancy, which is only a presenting problem if folks locally organize around this as a problem, right? Who am I to come in as a Westerner and say, there are sky high rates of teen pregnancy, and this is a problem I'm going to solve. No, 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 no. Because <laughs> you, you must remember for the longest period of history, teenage pregnancy was just pregnancy. Teenage pregnancy has only become problematic in certain pockets of the world way recently. And so this clinic has been an awesome opportunity to continue learning so much in so many areas. Wow. That's, I mean, it's fascinating work. And Pete, for the folks that are listening and for the person who's watching or listening and wants to get involved in social initiatives, what advice would you give? 
I'm not sure I would give any advice, but I would ask why. Not because <laughs> it's your listener's job to convince me. I don't matter. But it is your listener's job if they want to be empathetic and compassionate and effective, or at least moving in that direction. Again, to understand, well, why do I want to get involved in social work? I'll give you a good example. So about three years ago, I was in Ghana. And I imagine maybe around this time, it, it might be important to point out that I spend roughly half the year, maybe a little less than half the year in Ghana, and the other half, a little more than half the year, either traveling or, or in the United States. So I'm never full-time living in Ghana, <laughs> but I, I go back and forth. So three years ago, we're in Ghana. It's, it is December. And so in Ghana, December is the summer. Of course, in the United States, December is the winter. And so it is terrifically hot. Me and my team members are sweating. And I remember vividly, we're sitting on these plastic chairs. We're having this meeting underneath this canopy. And the director of the organization that I was working with at the time said, there's this great news. So the team leans in. And he says, we've got this donation of six computers, right? Six desktop computers to us, to our organization. And we have this awesome opportunity to then turn around and give these computers to a rural school. And of course, you, know, you look around, you see the excitement on our team members' faces, right? Because they want to do good. They want to serve. So the conversation immediately goes into, oh, you know what? What schools have we worked with uh, that we can give these laptops to? And then the conversation sort of changes rhythm and says, oh, you know, what are some rural schools? Maybe we should target rural schools. And then the conversation morphs again. It's like, well, wait a second. What schools? If we gave the, the computers to, would give us the most press. And so this conversation goes on. And maybe after 20 minutes, right? Again, I'm, I'm being elicitive. I'm listening. I'm thinking, okay, let's <laughs> ask the only non-Ghanaian here. I, I want to be sure to, to hear what's going on and, and to only be helpful where it is helpful. So after 20 minutes, I sort of raise my hand, sheepishly at the time, because I'm still meeting members of this team. And I say, well, what would it look like if we gave these six computers to an NGO whose sole mission is to deliver technology to local schools for the improvement of educational outcomes. Because our mission is to systematically reduce public health concerns, namely teenage pregnancy, HIV AIDS, and in so doing raise awareness of the phenomenon of sugar daddies. And the, and the point that I'm making here is my team sort of looked at me here, this team sort of looked at me, and there was confusion. And, and then after a few seconds, someone said, well, well, why would we do that? The, the six computers are, are ours. And, and there, there was never an explicit mention of this is a great PR opportunity for us. But there was that in the air, like this is, this is our good to do. And the story is, for me, a great reminder of we have this resource. The resource does not at all fit our mission. We personally have connections to other organizations whose mission it is to deliver technology to improve educational outcomes. If we really wanted to do good, not just feel good, but do good, our primary concern might be, oh, well, let's get these computers to another organization. They can deliver them and do measurement evaluation and ensure that educational outcomes changed in the way that was desirable for a local community or population. And so what does this story have to do with your question? Well, 
in some sense, it's great to want to do good. But in my experience, all too often, and I am so guilty of this, I am, I am, <laughs> I have tripped and fell and learned over and over. It's important to want to do good, but then recognize, okay, I know that there's this innate, there's this feeling inside of me that I feel good when I'm able to help people or I'm able to serve. But all too often, it can be the case that serving or doing good just amounts to feeling good in a sort of cheap, thin, superficial service. And then you leave and you feel good and you feel like you've done well, when in fact, you haven't really sustainably changed everything. There are some excellent examples in data out there. Dare, the program Dare, which is a program in the United States that might operate elsewhere. Third-party audits of Dare have come to find that Dare, over all of the years it has operated, is either net neutral or net negative in terms of reducing the use of drugs. There's another TV show that I think has also had a movie spinoff, but I could be wrong. I believe it's called Locked Up, but I could be wrong about that. I'd have to double check, but the name doesn't matter. The premise is we take, oh, this, the name is Scared Straight. It's not Locked Up. So Scared Straight, the premise is we take young folks who the community or somebody identifies as potentially this person might be engaging in criminal activity or soon to engage in criminal activity. So their future might be filled with you know, incarceration or crime. So what are we going to do? We're going to take them into prison, into a jail, have them meet folks who are incarcerated and have them be, title of the show, Scared Straight. But what happens? Again, third-party auditors have come in and said, well, over all the years that Scared Straight has operated, they have, there has actually been a measurable increase in incarceration, in criminal activity with the folks that this program has worked with. And so it's a net negative. And I bring these examples to the front, not to be overly harsh to dare or overly harsh to the scared straight, because I think the ideas that are at the foundation of these initiatives can be promising, though the execution hasn't been. But I say this to make the point that, you know, if there are million dollar organizations that have been around for a decade or longer, that many folks, at least in the United States, might have heard of, that are doing net negative, and again, measuring good is notoriously difficult. And I don't subscribe to the theory that good can be measured, but of course, in some instances, it's of course really important to measure output and outcome. If these organizations are, are doing more harm than good, at least bared out by statistics, then imagine what <laughs> individuals who just sort of say, I want to serve, might end up engaging in. And so it should be a cautionary tale, and I'm not trying to steer folks away from service by any means, steer folks away from, from engaging in a sort of liberative agenda. I am encouraging, gently inviting people to say, okay, I want to do good. Let me learn more about what that looks like for the community or for the group I work with. Yeah, I think that's a wonderful definition there because I think that's the type of insight that, you know, someone, to your point, that is expressing the idea, but may not have the full maturity to understand the implications of it. I think that what you just described is hopefully incredibly helpful for a lot of people. Pete, how can our listeners continue to follow you and your good work? Well, I'm a bit of a recluse at times. <laughs> so the one way that you can, again, as I mentioned earlier, if you're interested in, in me, fantastic. I am not so important. The work that I do, the ideas that I stand behind, the values that I try to embrace, that's what's important. So if you're interested in following those things and learning more, my Twitter is at Mr. Pete Freeman, M-R Pete Freeman. Same thing for my Instagram. 
My website, PeteFreeman.com, is currently under construction, so I wouldn't recommend that right now. In the future, that'll be back up. But ultimately, if you want to continue learning about what this podcast has sort of lifted up or the conversations that Jacob and I have been having, I would say, push me to the side and take the strand that was interesting to you and go run with it. Plug it into Google. It doesn't have to be complex. And try to learn more, whether that's about elicitive peace building or elicitive intervention. Great. If that's about values, Jacob has fantastic resources for values-based learning, for understanding values, living by values, and living into values. Or maybe that's about the concept of Okay, doing good and not just feeling good, which is a term of phrase I borrowed, I borrowed from Will McCaskill, who is one of the proponents of effective altruism. Full disclosure, I don't endorse effective altruism. I'm not a proponent of effective altruism, but as with all things, there are helpful seeds and nuggets in almost everything that can help you work toward whatever it is you're leaning toward. And that's certainly the case in the work of effective altruism. So again, Push me to the side. I'm somewhat unimportant. <laughs> and instead, pick up the concept and run with it and learn more. The final thing I'll offer on this topic, because it was such a revelation for me and an important one. When I began undergraduate university, one of the questions that plagued my experience was, why are there thousands of these academics who are spending their lives understanding problems? They're spending so much time, energy, finances, grant money, understanding problems, when all of those resources could be marshaled toward transforming the problem. But as I progressed more and more through college, I slowly began to realize, ah, <laughs> ask better questions. Because, in fact, if you don't understand what we label as a problem, right, then whatever attempt that is made to solve or transform the problem will very likely be less effective than if you had come from a critical analysis of what is happening. And so for those listening, I completely understand. I am yes, guilty of this a hundred times over of having maybe the passion or the interest at least to want to say, okay, I want to jump in and I want to learn. I want to or solve, I should say, this problem or serve. It will be so much more beneficial to you, to the communities you work with, if you first say, okay, I'm interested in this problem, let me shut up, listen, and learn. Pete, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thank you. Jacob, thank you for having me. Absolutely. And for the listeners, be sure to tune in in the upcoming episodes in the following weeks. And thank you again, Pete. We've really enjoyed the chat. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Discover Your Values podcast. Are you ready to explore your values and create your best life? Visit discoveryourvalues.com and download our workbook to begin your journey.